Welcome to the Chameleons Podcast. It has been said that all people have one or perhaps a few personal drives that deeply underlie their actions and choices in the moment and long term. It is like a compass whose directions you can't ignore. If you're going north and off track, the compass will tell you that, nah, you're not on the right path. In this interview, I sat down with Arjun Chandra, co-founder of the AI tech company Brua, the Norwegian word for the bridge. As we learn about his journey from math, programming, robotics, and natural computation, to his current pursuit of building AI at the frontier that is genuinely human-centered and socially responsible, it became apparent to me that his passion for making technology that can play a positive role out there in the real world has probably always been there. And also that with the acquisition of knowledge about how to make something comes the process of aligning this with one's personal values and worldviews. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And like me, be inspired to reflect more about the world we want to build for us and for those following us. Before we start, just a quick mention of a new sponsor. Nomono is a Norwegian company dedicated to improving and simplifying podcasting. Their portable sound capsule is easy and intuitive to use. You simply put on their Wi-Fi connected multi-track recorder, use the four high-quality wireless mics to record, and it gets automatically uploaded to your very own Nomono cloud, where the AI-powered audio enhancement provides exceptional audio quality. I used the Nomono portable podcasting kit to record this episode, and I will continue to use it in future interviews, because I can't see how I would be able to continue podcasting without it. Check out their website on nomono.co. I highly recommend it. This is the Chameleons Podcast, and I'm your host, Imak Samrana. And now, the interview with Arjun Chandra. First of all, I'm super happy to have you uh, on this podcast. I'm really grateful that you took the time. And yes. I'm glad to have been invited and apologize for, <laughs> for the delays that kept happening because of various things that come in life. But now the stars are aligned and yes, <laughs> I think right. it is happening. <laughs> yes, I feel like that's uh, the most important thing. The stars are aligning. It's like missed opportunities lead to something else. Yeah. The reason I wanted to talk to you is that you presented Brua once. First of all, what captured me was why you were doing it. And also when someone new shows up, I really want to know what their story is. And, and so could we perhaps start with that? How your interest in machine learning started? Yeah. What your story is? Absolutely. So the story around working with machine learning and AI started uh, around 2000, I would say, actually. I got interested in robotics, and together with a couple of fellow students mm. from university, was different this disciplines. In Oslo? This was not in Oslo, this was in India actually. Oh. So with the fellow students, we thought, okay, let's try to make something from scratch. So like everything from the hardware to the software wow. and the electronic circuitry that goes between 
the control system. We did that all together. Without um, any prior knowledge about? We, we were studying our respective uh, areas. So my background is uh, computer science and engineering. Then we had an electronics person on board. Although we switched roles because I was more interested in the electronics <laughs> at the time and he was more interested in the software. So he took that role and we had a mechanical engineering friend. So we all got together and just made this arm. And this arm we showcased in a national competition, <laughs> got some nice feedback. And, and what could the arm do? You could, you could control it through. We also made a programming language. You could just write programs for this arm to do something on its own. So you could just write up a script and through the control circuitry, that arm would be controlled given this uh, program and do things like uh, pick up a pen and start drawing something. Wow. <laughs> that was basically when it started. At least the idea of doing something great with other people who are somewhat different to you but of course we share the same vision mm. that idea started there mm. that feeling started there really which is the feeling i have always tried to emulate in say collaborative projects that i have done in my life and which is what i also expect for brua to be long term in fact also what brua to enable long term robotics was the entry mm. but then i was also very keen on math and i moved to the uk for my masters and a phd but during the first month of my master's, I got introduced to uh, machine learning from a formal perspective. I hadn't really heard of the name of this field, what it involves, but I applied to a course which was related to AI and robotics. Uh, it was called natural computation, actually, essentially about looking at nature, taking inspiration from nature and distilling those ideas into mechanized software or hardware for solving challenges like building learning systems, mm. building optimization systems, or build, making new designs, including hardware. So for example, you know, when you talk about neural networks, neural networks are inspired by nature, this brain that we have, mm. that we all carry. So that was part of the program. Wow. Then quantum computation was part of the program. So there we are taking inspiration from, you know, light and really mechanizing or controlling light to figure out how can we use it to compute. So uh, using ideas, uh, that are available in nature, try to mechanize them into a tangible form that we humans can operate. Maybe I'm complicating this no, actually. No, I think but it sounds amazing because in a way you are replicating or representing processes that are working, they're functioning out there in the real world. In the real world, yeah. And then you mirror that in the machine. But Roughly approximate, let's say. Uh, yeah. The idea is like evolution as well, mm. right? So evolution per se is open-ended, right? But yeah. there are ideas that I was made aware of at the time, the two, 2003 actually, when I started my master's, 2003. Yeah, it's a long time so, ago, yeah, 20 years. So, so there, there <laughs> okay, you learn about how people have thought about evolution from a more computational perspective. So evolutionary algorithms had been developed and mm. as a big field of research. They can be employed for optimization problems in the real world. Essentially a search algorithm, which you know represents the solutions to any problem in the form of a string, let's say, like DNA, <laughs> and then mixes and matches those strings to get new solutions. If I want to have a neural network yeah. that 
classify a certain object. Let, let's just say a simple problem, yeah, dogs and cats. So that's the objective. But what are the parameters of that neural network? These neural networks have a large number of parameters and they have to figure out the boundary between what is a dog, what is a cat, so that when you put in a picture of a dog or a cat, it can essentially go down that boundary, separate these concepts and mm give you a label okay that's a dog or that's a cat but you have to optimize those uh, parameters right so and you can represent those parameters as strings or whatever you can even represent the architecture of these neural networks in the form of a string and then you can uh, essentially get ideas from nature recombination mutation and so you're basically putting two strings together copying some of it making them parents copying half from one half from the other or you're happens. mutating and that's a new solution you can instantiate into a neural network mm. and see if that is better if it's better then you can feed this fitness <laughs> back into the system <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so uh, the better uh, the outcome is the more of uh, that solution copies of that solution or the space around which that solution lies gets more populated by actual real actual real solutions world. kind of how yeah. it works in the real world and yeah, how yeah. applicable it is and kind of it's yeah. survival of the fittest kind of yeah natural evolution <laughs> laws apply to that algorithm so this is like a one thing that i studied then neural networks per se is another thing how to make them learn through various methods that are part of the toolbox today like mm. gradient descent and other kinds of techniques just basically looking at the math of how to update parameters following a gradient on a lost surface and where the loss and the fitness roughly the same thing could um, you explain that what does that mean so again dogs and cat say you have some set of parameters they are classifying this picture incorrectly so you have a mathematical expression that tells you how bad is the classification result that's the loss function and now you want to update the parameters such that this loss function value uh, gets reduced the loss gets lower and lower so this is essentially a function of functions the final function being a, the loss loss of a neural network which is actually a mathematical expression if mm. you write it down it's essentially a function of some parameters so say a line the most basic linear model it's just a, a parameter right two parameters yeah just the slope and the intersection so this is a linear linear model you could have a linear layer mm. and you can add a layer further so you make the outputs of this function feed into the next layer which is another linear function let's say so that's a function of another function and all of these functions have their own parameters so you could basically write out the entire neural network as a function of 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 a function, right. of a function. so everything is connected so you have yeah. functions that are on the same level and then a hierarchy right yeah one thing you said earlier, the mutation part, like in biology, a lot of time it's expected outcomes and sometimes it's not. Yeah. It's unexpected because yeah. it's a new mutation. Yeah. And is it the same in, would you do the same in programming where you sometimes would artificially create a mutation mm. to see how it unfolds? Yeah. And sometimes you probably know what will happen. But sometimes you don't. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So, so that's a separate method. But this one, you don't necessarily mutate per se you could actually inject some noise here and there which uh, people do you know to make the model more robust mm. so that you don't see one parameter is mm. not the one that needs to be relied on most so that other parameters in the model take over mm. some of the 
job of solving the task at hand, right. like classifying. But what I was saying is, so yeah, so there's a function of a function, a loss function is at the top. And you basically, if you have this mathematical expression, you could think of it as a function in, in, in a, yeah, as, as a graph, if you like. And the parameters would be what you choose on these axes. Then you go to that spot on the surface of this function. That's your loss value, right? And then you basically are trying to descend the gradient and you're trying to minimize this loss right. and you just do uh, uh, partial derivatives from uh, loss all the way backwards. You just take that away. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly, yeah. So you just find the derivative of the loss with respect to all the parameters and it is very simple to do. It's uh, the chain rule of derivatives applies here. So you can essentially figure out how much would the loss be affected if I change the first layer's parameter by a little bit. Just tweak it. Yeah, so all the parameters inside the model contribute to the loss and you can figure out the contribution calculating derivatives. Essentially, that's what a derivative is. So derivative of something with respect to something else is really how much does something change if something else changes by a bit. Yeah, so right. that's exactly what we try to figure out and that forms part of the update that you do to this model yeah. so that you move down this loss surface over and over, you do this over and over again oh. when you get to some low loss. But there are many other things mm. that happen along the way. Mm. And you start to do this as a student, you start to study this and then how did you end up going from there to what other skill sets did you get along the way and how did you kind so of... So the math here yeah. really intrigued yeah. me at the time and... Math was also one of my favorite subjects during school and I was interested in robots and AI in general so uh, machine learning sort of at the time gave me a good mix of everything. Uh, it was a complex system as well. Uh, they can connect all of those interests. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my first few projects were centered around making these neural networks be trained uh, in a reliable way such that the results that they produce are more robust to unseen inputs, yeah. right? Yeah, so that's, yeah. that's like the machine learning 101 kind of thing. I want to make these neural networks generalized to unseen cases because that's exactly what you yeah. have to do when you deploy these neural networks in the real world. You don't see real data until you see it. It better <laughs> be good. So I guess this idea around generalization was the most appealing mm. to me. Inside all of machine learning? Why? I don't know. Just, I guess it's maybe just intuitively made me trigger the most at the time. Both the math was nice to deal with. At the same time, I think the implications hmm. were also important. Like, why else would you use machine learning? You're building a system such that it can be useful. <laughs> It should be useful in the wild as well. Mm. Otherwise, what's what's the point? Maybe uh, that's coming from my engineering mm. uh, background, that anything I would like to do, probably I wanted it to be useful and mm. more practical. At some point, of course, I, I was very, very interested in the research as well. But in the long run, if these things cannot be used, then... Then why why do well, it? Yeah, huh. why do it? And, and if they will get used, then... We should be very careful about uh, what we're building because uh, yeah, we're trying to make this useful, take the responsibility to make it good. So I'm partly, I guess, uh, rationalizing as well why I was interested in this as a 22-year-old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to look back and think about what was it 
that intrigued me. What aspect of this? Why did Definitely. I end up like spend so many hours on it? I did. I did spend <laughs> a huge amount of hours actually. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was basically the grounding maybe I needed to really go into the thick of machine learning and AI with an engineering background mm. and, and now getting more and more into research domain. And so for the next uh, 10 years or so, I was busy with a research career. So uh, master's, a PhD and a postdoc, which moved me to Norway. Oh, that's why <laughs> you're here. Norway, yeah. So, so why, what did you focus on during your research? What aspects of machine learning and was that kind of more the applied things or were there more theoretical or engineering? So actually one other thing that has always intrigued me is how us humans come together and make decisions, right? So that is also some of the things that got me intrigued into getting into the generalization problem. Mm. Because the thing I was looking at was not just single neural networks, how they can be made more generalizable, mm. but how a committee of neural networks can come together and, you know, correct each other's mistakes and come ah. to an agreed upon solution. Like right? democracy. Consensus. <laughs> yeah, consensus was a big yeah. thing. That Maybe that's coming from growing up in India or something. I don't yeah. know. It's very complex there. <laughs> There's many heads. You were working then on trying to make machine learning algorithms that was addressing decision making yeah. among several uh, agents or? Trained on, say, slightly different data sets mm. so that they have a diverse opinions, let's say, or mm. diverse, there's a diversity in there, which allows for them to correct each other's uh, errors, for example, mm. and then, you know, building a consensus mechanism or on top of their outcomes so that the final result is an agreed upon one that can be shown to be mathematically possessing more generalizing capabilities. So a committee of learners generalizes better than a single model. Always? Pretty much, yes. It makes sense when you say it like that, of course, because you get kind of different inputs and those different inputs mm. might generate into a better nuanced decision making. Yeah. But at the same time, that kind of agreement process, mm. wouldn't that always just be in the middle of the variance of decisions? So you have to build those diversity injecting schemes and the mechanism that puts the outcomes of individual models together in a certain way. You could, you could for example, do a majority vote if you're right. doing a classification task. So you could have five yeah. systems or yeah. algorithms. Three of them say one thing, yeah. two of them say other things, so th the, the three majority wins. wins. You could also average the results and yeah, you have multiple mechanisms in place. I then experimented with many of those during my master's and also my PhD. What field was this in? Was it in decision making? It was machine learning. Machine learning. Yeah. As I mentioned, so natural computation mm. was my inroad into all things nature inspired, but it also means socially inspired. Yeah. So this consensus is kind of a coming from how societies work. So during my PhD, I was actually working on slightly different things, more like building complex adaptive systems. Mm. So almost agents actually. So you have neural networks uh, that are acting on someone's behalf to talk to each other towards some goal. So the thing I was uh, working on during the PhD was actually more related to uh, decision-making through consensus or through or resolving conflicts if you have multiple players. So I was looking at the negotiation problem, bargaining problem to be more precise. So I was getting agents to actually haggle <laughs> with each other. This was kind of inspired by some of the things 
we were thinking about more longer term, grander things that academic research thinks about before industry, mm -hmm. for example. Like if you want to have a cloud-based uh, setup. At the time, cloud compute was a little bit in its infancy. People were thinking about, okay, we'll have multiple services deployed in the cloud. They would need resources like compute, memory, hard data, hard drives, and just storage. How can we make sure that they get the right resources at the right time for the task at hand. One of the ideas that was going on at the time was we were thinking about taking inspiration from markets. Mm. Market-based control, actually. Taking inspiration from how human societies have arranged ourselves in market mechanisms, auctions and bargaining, mm. all the things we do in order to, you know, exchange resources. Of course, for a PhD, you can't focus on a huge thing, so I focused on a bargaining problem. Okay, let's make agents or machines uh, haggle and see how, how they behave, actually. Can we actually be sure that we can design algorithms that allow for uh, these multiple conflicting agents to come to some sort of agreement? What does that agreement look like? Can we actually make them reach a desired objective from the top down as well. Okay. If you look at the bargaining problem, economics books, uh, you know, <laughs> the simplest one would be one round ultimatum game, right? So there you have uh, two players, the uh, first mover takes it all. That's the equilibrium solution, mm. <laughs> right? Because there's no other round and it's very clear or the, the other side basically gets very, very little. Well, the first mover has a big advantage. Mm. You just say, I want 99% of this pie. The rational thing for the other side to do is to just take it, yeah. right? Because there is no other rule in the game mm. to help that decision. Of course, when you deploy it in the real world, uh, <laughs> people happen. are people, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. Depending on the culture you deploy this ultimatum mechanism, in Norway, people re would reject unless you are doing 50-50. That's not rational, but that's how we behave. This is just economics 101. You are very aware of this. Yeah. So I was trying to make machines haggle and understand the algorithms that go into producing the haggling behavior, but at the same time, also seeing if we can direct these machines towards these more desirable behaviors. Maybe we don't want, a, you know, the first mover taking everything mm. case. We want a more fair or equitable outcome, like mm. a 50-50. Can we design the processes uh, both from the ground up in mm. the algorithms that the machines use to learn to behave in this game? Mm. And also, can we set up the mechanism itself mm. such that the outcome is uh, more desirable. Determine the outcome and then they yeah. would figure out a way to get to that outcome. So say yeah. you defined it yeah. as I want 50-50. Right. Yeah. yeah. But you could also define the strategy. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So uh, the actual PhD, maybe we shouldn't talk about it <laughs> now. <laughs> no. but, uh, so this, but these uh, agents that I was uh, making, they were neural networks. Mm. Uh, and over time, those also changed to something else because uh, one has to finish a PhD mm. um, yes. within a certain time. So yeah. and neural networks are very complex beasts. So yeah. if you're trying to make neural networks haggle with each other in 2004, it doesn't necessarily go well in the first instance. No. It's, it, it took a lot of effort to make them behave, yeah. even learn something from each other's feedback, for example. There's two separate networks or five separate networks. They're all inside this game. So these socioeconomic games were intriguing to me because we were thinking about 
you know, eventually having that agent be deployed somewhere, doing a, something real, like getting resources from pool of resources, which maybe it has to interact within an auction mechanism for these resources, or it has to haggle with other agents which right. are acting on someone else's behalf, like making a completely automated system of a automated cloud that really works on some market-based principles where we can have the resources allocated in an efficient way, but at the same time, fairer way. There's something about fairness that has always been there. I don't know. Consensus and fairness and all that. If humans don't intervene, like if we didn't have cultural intervention into the human nature, I wonder how fair things would be. Yeah, yeah. If you just leave it up to a system and you don't consider that, yeah. Will it be fair ever? Yeah. So I guess there's a, some kind of a social responsibility thing that mm. I've mm. been interested in for a long time, or the, maybe it's part of my being, uh, which also ties into Brua in yeah. hindsight, actually. <laughs> so, uh, Do you want to talk a little yeah, bit about yeah. that? Or is there anything that happened in between from there to Brua? Well, so I'll be yeah, maybe more precise <laughs> on that. So okay, postdoc here was kind of about these complex systems, how we can create both algorithms for agents to learn, but at the same time mechanisms that could allow for efficient and fair resource allocation across these different agents. After which, actually, I decided to move into the more real world again. <laughs> so I had an education technology startup for a couple of years. Oh. Yes. So this was a company I joined that didn't start myself. Uh, great guys. They're still here. They still are going really well. We were focused on education technology at the time and my passions lied in actually, so I also liked teaching during my academic stint. I wanted to be as clear as possible in communication, in my science communication or whatever. So I wanted basically every student or every kid on the planet to become a polymath (laughs) through some sort of AI enhanced educational experiences. So I was taking care of the AI side of things in that a company we were developing a personalized assistant to a real tutor it was a tutoring system really so students could come and chat and have interactions which were pretty much as close as you can get for the technology of the time to being on a whiteboard having a one-on-one interaction with a student but through the web service mm. that a student and a tutor could come together and mm. the tutor would start teaching something. They would mm. scribble, they would draw, they would whatever. Mm. They would speak through uh, their computer. Mm. <laughs> so know? this was online? This was online, mm. a web mm. service. And the student and the tutor would have that mm. personal experience. But my role was uh, more to, okay, so we can generate a lot of content this way. Can we you know, chop them up into bite-sized snippets mm. and serve them to the same students or other students uh, mm. in a personalized way so that mm. so that they can go through the curriculum in their own pace and if they don't have access to this personal tutor for some reason say they they want to learn at 9 p.m for some reason just before going to bed or something <laughs> and they they can't get a tutor right like that so here's an assistant which can help guide you through the curriculum so i'm you're focusing on math again the yeah. math comes from my interest in math yeah. as well that was a startup, but then at the same time, actually, there was a bunch of stuff happening in the deep learning community. So I wanted to get back into that research a little bit again. So I joined uh, a, a research organization in Trondheim. Uh, I joined Telenor Research, who were kind of starting out the AI group to try to both build 
new AI capabilities on the cutting edge, but at the same time, try to see how to deploy these in the industry. Now there was uh, this opportunity opening up to, again, get back into neural networks. I guess more work on the frontier of AI. So, uh, and actually some of the work we did is used right now in, in conversational technologies, actually. As... So not just not Telenor, but <laughs> maybe yeah. Telenor is also using yeah. it. And actually I'm pleased to say that some <laughs> of that work, it came from a student of mine. Uh, and it's basically a, a, a reinforcement learning method that he invented. And that is actually used, is one of the two methods that is currently being used for uh, developing conversational AI. The other method was uh, developed by OpenAI, and this method was developed by him. Wow. And he has joined Brewer. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so now your old student is working with you again. He's a co-founder. He's no longer a student. He's a, a, he's a co-worker and a co-founder. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. So you said there were two methods. What is the difference They're between different? They are very similar. Yeah. So they are applied in the conversational AI agent or model development pipeline at the same stage, which mm. is RLHF, reinforcement mm. learning from human feedback, to align these models to our preferences or whichever preferences mm. that you can bake in to these models through a reward system that you build. So, so, so that could be uh, don't, al- don't yeah. talk about yeah. uh, emotional stuff. For example, yeah, yeah. that could yeah. be one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can train these say, language models now against a reward model, and that reward model is actually trained on human preferred or say some kind of preferences, mm. which we can bake in right mm. into a reward model. So you can have this uh, neural network generate something and give that generated text say to this reward model, and it could score it. But this is no good. Oh, this is good, but good relative to what? Relative to the preferences that it has been trained on. Right. Right, and then you can feed back the signal to update the generation process of based this uh, based neural on the model. reward. Yeah, so mm. uh, if mm. it's high reward, highly preferred output, okay, do more of that is the signal that we give to this language model then. Mm. And the language model does more of that. Okay, offensive stuff. Don't do that again. Okay, I will not do that again. That's the kind of update that happens on these models. Conditioning of the algorithm. I guess one of the numerous safety mechanisms you can have in place, but this is not foolproof at all. This space is very much up for exploration and innovation. Brua will be part of it as well. So You can optimize it in so many ways, yeah. probably. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. also new algorithms can be uh, invented for aligning with certain preferences. Mm. You define them somehow through whatever process, ideally a democratic process, <laughs> right. I guess. Right. I guess the preferences will always change. So you always need to continue that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would, You'd have to yeah. uh, keep your eyes open to, you know, cultural conditions that necessitate changes to the preference model, let's say, depending on how these things are deployed and adopted, actually, how we, yeah, I can talk more about it later, actually. It's fascinating that you're working on this now in Birua. We we are, yeah, we will be innovating in this space for sure Mm. over time. I guess a lot of my journey, maybe some of it may seem a little patchy, but it all has sort of led to where I am right now. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> When you're moving ahead in life, yeah. you see all the treads. I'm getting old and, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of gut feeling yeah. driven things that I did, they seem to be aligning more and more as I grow old. It's a pattern. And, 
Yeah. So this reinforcement learning work happened. So I was very much involved in working on the frontier of that. And of course, we did nudge the frontier. So DeepMind is using that method to train their conflation <laughs> agent. Of course, they are. Uh, they've taken it much further, and you know, uh, yeah, yeah. With the kind of resources that these large companies have, lots of things. But we will also do those things. That's amazing. Uh, so, so then after that, I moved to GraphCore. So. That's an AI chip and systems company, and yeah. I was so that's hardware, hardware. Mm. But of course, as much hardware, or even more software than hardware. Of mm. course, the the core product of that company is hardware, mm. but you can't yeah. use any hardware without proper software. So, my role there was to drive the large model training stability program. So large models were basically taking off around this time. Very, very large models, especially language. Mm, like <laughs> ChatGPT and so those are even larger. Yeah. But it started out around 2017, where things got a bit more clear that these larger and larger models, if you scale them more, they get more capable. And mm -hmm. people are still exploring what the capability suite of these models is. Where are the limits? This is an open research question. Mm -hmm. So my role there was a more practical, actually, just try to work. Yeah, we had set up a team, tried to figure out how these large models can uh, be trained end-to-end -end from start to convergence uh, without failures because these are uh, lots of issues that happen when you are trying to deploy these big models onto any hardware, mm. but especially new hardware, yeah. numerical issues and hardware failures and all sorts of things. And is it also because of restrictions in the hardware that you would yeah. basically... Design just... choices of mm. the hardware uh, mm. can also limit or uh, guide the software stack right. to uh, develop algorithms that allow for better porting of these large models onto that hardware. So if you are dealing with a very low precision, for example, like if you're representing every parameter by uh, not 32 bits, but 16 or 8 or 4 bits, you're restricting the numbers, actual number of numbers you can represent. I was working on this and mm. we released just at the end of my time there, we released something called automatic loss scaling, for example. That is a, a way to dynamically and automatically have the system monitor. And if there are any numerical issues coming up, if so, then tweak the way the numbers get represented. Mm. In this hardware. Yeah, yeah. Scale or upscale or downscale them right. such that we can still represent the precision which gets lost. Right. Actually, when you reduce the number of bits, so so you have to deal with certain scaling issues. Depending on the number format you have chosen for your hardware, yeah. and there are different number formats one can choose. So I was basically trying to ensure that large models get trained end-to-end -end without having to babysit them. Right. It, right? <laughs> so basically, just, yeah, like yeah. erase them. Bring stability mm -hmm. to uh, each mm -hmm. run because it, it makes developing these or training these models easier for, say, our customers who would use the hardware, but at the same time would save a lot of time as well. You don't want to set up a training run. These things take a long time to train. So say a week, set up a run for a week and you go off and then you come back after a week and you see that, oh, on day three, it actually failed. But do you think that there might be benefits of developing the hardware and the software together yeah. and not just like build Absolutely. hardware and then always together, right? Absolutely. A, that, yeah. that is a big advantage. Every always. chip company, every compute selling company, AI compute selling companies 
has to do that. So NVIDIA, who was the competition, is oh, the competition still. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's pretty uh, uh, major. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they got in early. Really great bet that was made by their CEO Huang some years ago, something. Jensen Huang. Jensen. Yeah, and they got their hardware to be adopted for machine learning through innovations in the software mm. layer that allows for using uh, the hardware for machine learning compute. And so they got there first and got popular and, and now that's the, the biggest. First mover uh, yeah. with a lot of yeah. resources, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. deep distribution networks and now they are, I guess, they <laughs> having so much demand that they can't keep up. So then that opens up, uh, I hope, for GraphCore core to take uh, some of that pie. Of that. During the same time, I had kids. And I think that also s goes into the story of Brua big time. Yeah. Because at some point as you grow old, you start thinking about, okay, I've been working on AI for 20 years. Why am I doing this? <laughs> what is it for? <laughs> what am I doing? Why, why am I trying to build this external brain that is so highly capable that maybe am I trying to replace the other human? Mm. That's exactly not what I'm trying to do. That's not what I want. So, you know, these kids, they're growing up now in a world where AI is soon becoming, it's now has become a first cultural concern. These capabilities are getting stronger and stronger. There's uh, lots of debates around existential risk, various narratives taking hold of uh, society. There's this narrative around doom, of course, where the lights are basically out for us. And then there's a narrative around AI being the best tool we would ever invent. <laughs> utopia would result in my view that is also lights out for us because uh, what would we do then mm. if everything is done by this <laughs> external thing <laughs> or external set of things mm. these super brains that are there out there so so what is ai for and and i actually have thought a lot about why am i even in, involved in this space there were times when i was not happy about being in the space but over time i realized that it really is up to us how we have these systems get deployed and adopted by society. It is a moral obligation for an AI researcher, an AI scientist, an AI engineer to see to it that what they're building is deployed for the benefit of society and not just deployed for anyone to do whatever the heck they want. Mm. All kinds of actors using the same tool as easily as possible, which kind of is the case right now, that there is this uh, access problem that has kind of gone away, thanks to, though I'm not blaming them, I'm just saying that they've shown that very, very capable systems can be built and deployed at scale, yeah. and people would use it. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating because it's also so generalized system, so it can be applied for so many tasks. It's, yeah. it's kind of like a weapon, you know? Yeah. A weapon can be used to take out a threat in a very restricted, conflicted area yeah. uh, or for protection, which it probably yeah. was developed for. But then it can also be used to hurt a lot of other people yeah. and animals, destroy. It has no specific target. But it also it has, has ups, obviously, right? Yeah, yes. So put to purpose for good use, it can yeah. really help a lot. Yeah. But, but that distinction between a targeted use mm. versus many targeted uses. Yeah. What's fascinating with 
ChatGPT, you know, it's no limitation with regards to what kind of tasks it could be involved in. Yeah, it has been trained across yeah. a range of human behaviors through text. And, but so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, actually, I, I see it is a moral obligation for any AI person who consider themselves as someone who's contributed to the development of AI in some way or who want to contribute to the development of the technology in some way to mm. be very, very constantly, daily, think about how these things get used and what exactly is the story we want to tell to ourselves, the generations to come as to why we built this thing. Why did we build this <laughs> boat? utopia and doom bringing monster. Is it a monster? Does it have to be a monster? Does it have to look like a monster? Or can we change that story? So that's where we are actually. Brua is about establishing a story for what is AI for. It is really about establishing a socially responsible role for AI capabilities that are emerging in our midst. We are thinking daily about how these capabilities can be adopted by people. Mm. right across domains or even at homes in general so i guess one thing one additional, additional thing i should mm. say yeah. is that so ai has been part of the human psyche since humans have been thinking mm. <laughs> it's it's part of our thought process this is a personal view and it could be rejected mm -hmm. <laughs> but this is something huh. that again is some one of those uh, gut things that i i believe so what are we doing yeah what, what are we building what do humans bring out to the world. It's somewhat part of our minds. Uh, it is uh, embodied in some form. It could be uh, a hammer, right? We are thinking about what we are trying to solve. A problem, there is a problem. Okay, there is a house that we have to build and for that we may have to have, get some wood and wood has to be put together, maybe through nails and whatnot. So what could help us solve this problem? Here's a hammer. <laughs> uh, what is that? Initially, it's a thought that then mm. takes form into this hard thing. So it's a piece of our mind. Mm. It's a technology that we've invented for some purpose. Fascinating picture. I'm looking like it's a realization. It's a of realization a of a thought. I see everything we have brought out in the world as a realization of thought. And AI is actually no different. In my eyes, it's a logical extension of this process of trying to build some sort of a solution, technology that helps serve a purpose. If you expand this idea further and further, you see that, okay, what is the most generic thing you can bring to the world, which is a piece of a mind that can help solve various challenges? It is a mind. <laughs> it is our mind. I mean, mm. it doesn't have to be a piece of a mind. It can actually be the mind itself. So it's kind of a logical extension. Okay, so almost feels like working on AI is like a, very humane process in some senses, like we, we all do it <laughs> because we are always trying to think of some sort of a solution to some challenge that we are facing and that thought is realized in some form, right? Like you're saying, a lot of what we produce, including AI, comes from the interest and drive to solve a problem or to create a solution that could help us or assist yeah. us in something. On the other hand, humans have this kind of very interesting quality of curiousness. Yeah. So you don't have a problem, you're not interested in solving the world, but you're still sitting there and thinking, what if 
Yeah, what if? I made this. Yeah. This kind of, what if that was available? Yeah. And then suddenly, then you start to think of, oh, that might solve this thing and this thing and this thing. But that kind of, that yeah, so com those two things combined. You're right, yeah. yeah. So curiosity is, a, yeah. so maybe I should rephrase. So it's yeah. not just a problem given by an external source. No. It's also internal, right? Yeah. So yeah. we have our own drives and they are really trying to shape what we're trying to bring out to the world. You could see that feeling that drives us to bring that thing out as, yeah, one way we, we behave, one way we solve that problem. So that's that. But yeah. then I ask myself this question. So, okay, hammers have restricted capabilities and we have figured out ways of uh, controlling the use of these things through law and whatnot. You know, these weapons, uh, we have regulation and all that around it. But AI is a, even though it may be a logical extension of this and we may be able to regulate these things, you know, these things are highly capable. They, they are much more nuanced than a restricted device or restricted software. They are more generic. <laughs> they are part, they're actually reflecting a lot of our minds. So, should we just deploy them, just like any other technology? Or should we have some way of creating a, a mindset, culture, or adoption strategies of this object, which spells the story of a social responsibility? I feel like it's the latter. So mm. really, in my mind, technology, whatever we do, the good side of it is really, what does it do? I mean, why do we even make things? other than it being part of our minds, it is also something that actually connects us, connects us humans, that brings us together. Because so, it also is part of our minds and so... So, I do something, mm -hmm. why am I doing it? What am I doing it for? What makes me feel most useful is when I bring something to the world and it serves some purpose. And that purpose as a social species is usually mm -hmm. served by helping the other human. So technology is there for us to get together and do great things, right? right. So, right. And I see that as the main role of AI too. AI capabilities should be deployed and get adopted such that they bring humans together to do wondrous things, to do great things. AI should not be seen as a substitute for another human. And, and uh, we should actually make seed mechanisms in the world that allow for thinking about AI in this capacity that it is there not as a substitute for any human. It is not there to replace a human. It is there for the humans in the room, the society in general to come together and do something. Yeah? It is there to mediate our experiences, of course, and it will help assist in various ways, but it is there as a tool for collaboration. Even if it's about conflict resolution, it can help bring different opinions in one space and help us try to deal with them in a more collaborative way. So Brua is a, really a symbol for that. You want to bring people together. <clears throat> yeah. What is Brua? Brua in Norwegian, what is it? It's a bridge. bridge. It's a bridge for human minds to come together and do great things. So AI that Brua brings out is really symbolized by what its role is. Its role is there for us humans to, to do great things. To great things, yeah. bring people together, bring human yeah. resources together and yeah. boost it. Yeah. What is the focus area? So yeah. from what I'm hearing, you have this kind of mission to do good with AI. A lot of people are talking about AI for the good, but you really talk about actually not just 
using it for the good, but developing it for the good. Developing, uh, deploying and having it adopted for good. It's, it's also the adoption, actually. Yeah. It's not just about, you know, making capabilities available. We will be training all we like to make them be reliable and safe. But if it is adopted for a bad purpose, you can do something really bad very reliably. <laughs> What's that? That's not what I want. I want this to have a story. This what we do to tell a story about what is AI for. It should be adopted to solve our differences, to bring us together and help us do great things. Instead of uh, creating isolation, creating differences, creating ever more complexity in some senses. As an example, like if you see how social media has been adopted, right, by kids, teenagers. Would I be wrong in saying that there's a lot of mental health challenges that have arisen from the use of this thing that sucks you in and isolates you from the other? AI has a capacity to turbocharge this isolation, in my view, and uh, I want to go completely against this trend that right. I'm also seeing. So people are using ChatGPT and other things uh, for, for good, really, I, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one thing that is becoming clearer and clearer is, uh, you know, is it a personal assistant that we need? Yes, maybe we need. Yeah, sure. It's a, like any computer. It's a bicycle for our mind, right. like rephrasing <laughs> this Steve Jobs quote, yeah. right? But I think that idea is incomplete. I feel like we have to make bridges to bring those minds that are riding those bicycles together and do great things with AI. So that's where BrewEye is focusing on. That's where we will deploy. That's how our product looks like. So um, you're building <coughs> basic AI systems that could be employed into many different uh, yeah. areas. Yes. Do you have any starting areas or so we have we have various verticals that we are already dealing with across health law finance education so we have first customers who are actually starting to use our, our, our offering in health or law i'm not uh, <laughs> i'm not say. open to say which it is <laughs> okay. actually so but but if we could talk about the education part then what kind of uh, function do you see that ai can have in education so this is a longer term thing for Brua. So we are currently focused on other verticals, but education is a, is a more special case. Also my favorite, actually. Yeah. Um, Mine too. <laughs> so what, 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 as I said, I'm trying to mechanize a story of AI. So one way I see we could be mechanizing this is by really showcasing what these capabilities can do to our kids at homes, at kindergarten, at schools. So we could employ a contraption. <laughs> I cannot say everything here. No, that's okay. Put yeah. something on our shelves, put something in the room, mm. in a kindergarten, let's say, or, or, or schools in a classroom, and you know, have an AI-mediated experience where the people in the room can actually feel that they are starting to work together a lot more than otherwise, actually. A true mediator. A very, a very rudimentary example as a father of a soon four-year-old <laughs> who we read lots of books to and who asks piercing questions <laughs> which really really hard to answer sometimes so but i see that as an opportunity for us to get closer so one could easily you know deploy a very fancy ai system in a form of a let's say a toy or something and give it to the kid that's the wrong way you know the kid could start asking questions and 
there's a dialogue going on and then soon you see that they isolate themselves and your parent-child bond breaks or your child just goes in and plays just like we play video games as kids yeah. you end up like, sucked into this ai thing yeah. it kind of achieves a human machine relationship but not the human but not the human yeah not the yeah. human relationship so i see that, that is like the 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 clearest embodiment of the thought that i mm. feel it's mm. like a visceral feeling when i think about ai and how it could be adopted i want that relation that i have to not be broken at all yeah. nurtured and strengthened in fact with mm. this ai thing that yeah. could be mediating that experience it could not be answering the question but maybe yeah. you know i get it creating a new experience mm. come up with riddles or some other ways for us to think through those riddles together and you know come to the answer jointly right yeah. so then i am telling my kid that you know okay we might be dealing with facts in the world so i'm educating my kid in that respect but actually what i'm trying to really tell the story of is that of ai ai is there to help us come together actually so that's brua for education mm-hmm. later on later on <laughs> it's kind of flashing out the, seeing opportunities also the general uh, ethos of the company is mm-hmm. really that bringing uh, people together yes otherwise what is ai for exactly what is it for uh, I don't want humanity to isolate itself and end up being more differences than they already are. I need for differences to be remedied and something that can help read the room and you know help us collaborate is something that I feel is a socially responsible role for this technology. Yeah. It's so important and one, one additional thing I want to say yeah, I yeah, just say, get say, very Yeah, but very it's super very charged when I talk about yeah, kids. Yeah, no, I love that because Brua the... came out of me feeling how are my kids going to be growing up with these emerging AI capabilities mediating most of their experiences in life from here on out because that's kind of what will happen actually it better be reliable these interactions it better be safe and they better tell a story of what is AI for and uh, really focusing on kids i feel is one of the core mechanisms that every AI person should be thinking about because to me it feels like a grassroots mechanism to tell the story of what's it for because role models of kids really are at home are at kindergartens mm-hmm. are at schools that's where we we make these microcosms for them to experience life and we want that experience to mean something as they grow if we deploy ai for it to be adopted for this purpose of connecting people we are actually telling our kids that is the role of ai mm. this is a good role of ai keep that in mind i will not interfere with your life so much once you are say 18 or beyond but you know we've had experiences with ai as we were growing up and we know that this is a good good role you're talking about an active and conscious engagement with ai not no. a passive no and not an unconscious very proactive yeah in fact really carving that role mm. yes so this mechanism that i call it this is the longest term mechanism i can think of right now mm-hmm. that will make society more stable in this ai age and this is something brua will be pursuing <laughs> the the seed of this idea comes from how i see myself interacting with my kids and how ai could mediate 
that experience, but in a socially responsible way. Because I want to showcase what that means. What does it mean for AI to be adopted, for it to bring people together for us to do great things, right? So the core ethos around Brua is about mechanizing a role for these powerful AI capabilities. And going deeper into that, as a parent, as an AI person who's been in this field for 20 years, now with very small kids who are growing up in this age of AI, mm -hmm. how I feel about how they would be using these technologies, the immediate thing that comes to my mind, the gut feeling that I have on how these capabilities should be used, is what I want to communicate to them at an early age. That's the main reason for that is because, you know, We've talked about this before as well, that role models for kids are really at homes. So everything that they experience, be it their parents, be it other things that they are doing, all the experiences that they are having at an early age, they set them up for life. So I want them to have a clearer picture of what really AI is so that they take that message further, they even play with that message in the long run and they kind of get an idea of what it is for AI to be deployed and used responsibly. That it is there like any technology for us. It is there for us. It is there for human thriving. It is uh, there so that we can come together and do wondrous things. So I want to communicate that message, uh, make them aware of this idea so that they take in that idea as defining a role for these capabilities. They can change the role later on as they wish, but if they have this as a model of what AI is, then I feel like that would make the generations to come and society in general more sturdy because it will tell them that AI is not there as a substitute for this other person. It's not there as a substitute for my parent or, or my teacher. It is there mm. to connect us and make this bond even stronger. So <laughs> I was thinking about how can I communicate this uh, in an easy way to my three-year-old, soon four-year-old. So we read lots of stories together. Uh, I'm telling my children stories pretty much every day, many times. So this was a bedtime story. So we were going to sleep and yeah, so I basically came up on the fly this, uh, this story and I saw my three-year-old really understanding that idea and almost finishing it for me. Mm. So here's, here's how mm. it went, actually. Uh, so I said to him, okay, here's the story. So the story goes like this. Uh, there was once a boy who made all kinds of robots. Some robots did puzzles, some made drawings, some made music. One day, the boy heard a very strange noise. He saw that someone had made this robot that was taking all his friends away to far off places. His friends started missing each other. They wanted to play with each other, but they just couldn't. They were just too far away. The boy decided to make a new robot. This new robot built long, sturdy bridges for each and every friend of his to come back and start playing together. And they did. The name of this robot was, and my son finishes this, Brua. Yeah. He got it exactly what Brua yeah. is all about. I actually yeah. felt like I'm doing the most meaningful thing in my life. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think I am. I think this will be my life's work. Yeah. Yeah. It just grips me. <laughs> it grips me too. <laughs> it's, that's beautiful. 
the way you talk about Brua, what you're saying makes so much sense to me because you're talking about a machine or an entity whose function is actually to be a part of the interaction, to have a role in an interaction, but not to replace the people who are part of that interaction, the human, you could say, actors. Mm -hmm. You're also talking about not using and applying AI individually, but together. Mm. So in a way, when we learn and talk and invite the AI into our conversations and into our interactions, mm. it integrates yeah. and we get that everyone can learn from mm. and where the outputs will be kind of shared. Mm. And then we can reflect on it together and we can really be conscious about the role that machine has which is something in addition, but not something that will replace. Yep. I think that's beautiful. Thanks. It makes sense to me. And, you know, if you can, a three-year-old, obviously a bright three-year-old, but can understand that. I mean, anyone can. I hope so. <laughs> I think that resonates with a lot of people. And if it resonates yep. with a child. Yeah. Mm. I just feel like we adults have lost some of our humanity in the recent times, in the last 20 years, by using tools that have somewhat isolated us. And so we don't really maybe feel that human connection as strongly as we used to. Mm. And I want AI to really bring that back rather than make it even worse, which can happen very easily, actually. And I see that the funding that is going into the space, it is for really, uh, you know, solving old problems that, that are part of the current context more efficiently. What does that mean? That means that you might end up making people individually more efficient, find a way to do things for individuals that maybe tell them that they don't necessarily need this other person to be part of that interaction. So they can do everything themselves. That is an example, if you look at how people might be using these anthropomorphized chatbots, mm. So if they've become even more capable, we could end up being engaged in those conversations with this agent sitting in our pockets yeah. and essentially isolate ourselves even further. There are dating companies now AI, <laughs> yeah. where that where you date a, like an AI mm. and people are falling in love, which I guess for many people, that love might not have been there. So yeah. it's kind of actually filling a, a gap, yeah. filling a, a, an empty space. But on the other hand, if we are developing AI capabilities that are actually mirroring and replicating, yeah, uh, it's like a replication of the human mind and work. Mind, yeah. <clears throat> and so it will naturally be a replacement because it, if we can train a machine to do what we do faster, more efficient without being exhausted. But on the other hand, could we assign it to a role where we're not replacing people, where we're actually making people even more creative, more yep. collaborative? Yep. It could have that function too. Yep. I think that's such a needed perspective. I feel like it's an open question what that role can be. And mm. there is no inevitability in some senses here. Like mm. you may hear stories around <laughs> okay, AIs that we're building, mm. they will succeed humans. I find that absurd, actually. Mm. Nothing around what humans do suggests that we want that kind of a role for AI. Maybe some people are interested in that kind of role, but there's a whole ecosystem. 
it's not just a bunch of uh, elite scientists who can decide that role. Maybe they're thinking about this, but we are many billions of people who have to come together and decide what the role of future powerful AI capability should be. Mm. And I feel like a socially responsible role mm. seems to be something that we can define. And the time to define it really is now, given the kind of power these machines yeah. seem to have now yeah. and the way they have been adopted at scale, which is also a great opportunity to actually establish some kind of a role for these things. And I feel like, yeah, something that sits there for us to do great things is a kind of a common sense role that we should ascribe to these technologies. Uh, shouldn't necessarily give them personhood of any sort. <laughs> that seems like a strange thing to do from a humanity's perspective. <laughs> I've spent a very, very long time, many years, thinking about why we are building AI. So I'm involved in the field. I got into it because of the love of math, but at some point I realized, okay, what is it for? What are we doing? Why are we building technology in our image? What drives us towards this? There are some of these fundamental questions that are behind what I want to do with Brua, why I wanted to focus on building bridges <laughs> with AI. Yeah. yeah. I love that. It's this very specific mission very specific mi yeah. mission, but like AI, it has a very generalized applicability. I hope so. It's yeah. a broad purpose. Yeah. It's because a... it's into all areas of AI. Yep. Yeah, all areas of uh, whatever work you do, actually. Mm. If, you, if yeah, that is the role mm. of AI, then, then, okay, that's a good role. The kid takes this message further, engages with AI capabilities, in whichever form, but they have this at the back of the mind that, okay, you know, I've had this great experience with AI as I grew up with my parents, with other kids, uh, and I made so many friends along the way. I, I got connected. Whatever I'm doing, it feels so meaningful <laughs> because there is the other human in the picture. So I don't want to use an AI to, you know, just replace this other human. Okay, if there's a way I can create a new world, which they will, I want to create a world where all humans take part in it. So I want to, say if I want to create a new uh, company or new, uh, new workplace, new mode of <laughs> being, I would have this in the back of my mind that, okay, AI is involved here, but it is not here to replace the other human. We can design our new world around AI, while at the same time, making sure that no one is left behind. That's really this thing, this story is what I'm trying to mechanize yeah. at the grassroots level. It's like but of course, cultivation of, yeah. of AI, AI yeah. development, employment. Yeah. It's a huge mission. That's Do what you, drives me. Yeah. There's a, that is the main driver for probably the rest of my life. <laughs> this is uh, the thing I will do. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I, I don't want to bring you down, but do you ever lose faith in the field when you see yeah, development. It happens, yeah. And I, I guess because you have that kind of perspective on AI, you will have a job for the rest of your life because I there. Will create it myself you if have I don't to, have yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, you will. You will have something to do and yeah. a real task to focus on. But there are so many others who are not thinking long term, not thinking about the cultivation of 
yeah. responsibility. This is widespread actually. How do you deal with that? Just want to work more? <laughs> so the thing is, this is passion. This is the core drive that I have. So irrespective of what people say, I will do something mm. in this domain. Now, if not now, later, it will happen. I hope it happens through Brua. That's why I actually started building this company. And I have support from people now to really shape this company from the ground up. We have a team and we serve this mission. <laughs> so I think we will do something meaningful around this ethos of the company. Yes. And, and the things we are deploying for our initial customers, they are following this ethos as well. That's amazing. You're also then kind of raising your customers with awareness. I wouldn't say raising, but at least making them aware of that. Maybe, maybe, that. maybe. Yeah, so it's often I've seen that, okay, now there's a big hype around AI, right? So pretty much everyone wants to employ it some, in some form or the other. Uh, and of course, the first thing people think about is, you know, the short-term benefits, mm -hmm. low-hanging fruit. So, of course, Brewer is not about that, right? Uh, <laughs> absolutely not. This is one thing, if you, if you ask people who have worked with me over the last 20 years, if there's one thing maybe they would say is, this guy does not like to work on low-hanging fruit. No. This guy only thinks very long-term. <laughs> And you're not driving a Porsche. <laughs> no. <laughs> But at the same time, of course, we have to be practical. So we have this ethos of this company injected in our product. So we are making our customers aware that Yeah, AI capability can be employed for this purpose. And uh, they are very, very, they are listening. Yeah. yeah. From uh, another perspective, this focus on yeah. human development, on human opportunities, yeah. etc. It's so connected to the SDG goals. And I mean, a lot of company would yeah. kind of uh, attest to that and support those because it's for their benefits with the current, you know, trends. I hope so. I've seen in my numerous chats with all kinds of, say, potential stakeholders, VCs or whatever have you. As I said, everyone wants a piece of the AI pie. And I see that this mission statement that we have, when I talk about it, say a VC who is, you know, in it just for getting on the AI wave, they don't want to listen to this. They want to make money. And we have, our team has the capability to develop something that can actually already, you know, make individuals, workplaces more productive, If, if we wish to, in a certain way, just by utilizing the capabilities, building our, our them ourselves, but having them deployed as they are currently in the real world, in the current context. So they would fund that team if we were to go for those low-hanging fruits. Yeah, there would be enough money for hiring 20 people if we just do that. But, you know, I always try to be very, very adamant about the core mission and that a VC who is not aligned to that core mission is not welcome. In Brewer. Yeah, it's not a good partnership then. It's not a good partnership and I don't want your money. Right. So we have had uh, numerous conversations with many and uh, yeah, we are still trying to work out our, we are deploying product now, but we are still trying to see how we can communicate this story and maybe the way the things I've communicated today and this stuff takes time to communicate. People who have deep pockets and no time, they don't have that much time to listen, I guess. Mm. And so yeah, they are putting it's... us in certain brackets. Yeah. Said, are you this kind of company? <laughs> okay, you're this kind of company. Okay, so you have these competitors. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to create culture with Brewer. Yeah. New culture with Brewer. And 
you cannot tell me that I cannot create it because I will create it. Yeah. It is for my kids. It's for the future generation. Yeah. What you're saying, you care about the future. Yeah, we'll fund the future. Yeah, here yes. and now we'll fund the future. Yeah. It's quite fascinating to look at different decks, you know, yeah. when people have pitches and stuff yeah. like that. Because sometimes it's a business model where you have the entire chain of mm -hmm. development, production mm -hmm. and income and revenue. And of course it's efficient and you need that as well. But it takes a lot of courage to think about how can I create something that can fundamentally change the way an entire field as a part of culture mm. will evolve in the future generations. Mm. That's kind Thanks. of... <laughs> it, That's that, what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that takes courage. But the fascinating thing is that it will never fail. It, it doesn't even kind of compete against these more strict business models because it's not a business model only. It is also business. But yeah. on the other hand, it's a much more fundamental, all-encompassive mission yeah. that will have many outlets. Thanks for saying that. I yeah, think, uh, I think that's, that's I think it's beautiful, and I, I, I really that's why I wanted you on this podcast because I really think that seeing the faces behind companies and really what drives that company mm. is so important, and I want people like that to develop the tools and technology that the children and the future generations to have. Yeah. yeah, everyone wants to have a good life for themselves, but what is that worth if nothing is happening after? It's like when you look at politicians and they only think about how to win the election. And then you have politicians who think how to build the society. Mm. And I put my bet on those people who don't have kind of this mission that is very short term, that is very dependent on their own careers. But they're actually thinking about, okay, but how can we build a society that's sustainable? So I'm really happy you exist and I'm really, uh -huh. I'm really grateful that, for the mission and the work you're doing. And I think it's really brave and amazing. Thanks. The only deadline I have is the end of my life. <laughs> yes. Have a, that's my job. <laughs> right, right. It lasts forever. It lasts forever. For me. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't have a four-year term or trying to make a career through various, you know, job changes lined up for me. I just want to do this. And that's part of the whole story. <laughs> I think that's amazing. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank for you for inviting. Uh, this kind of interaction also is part of the courage, actually, that I gain from such chats. Everyone who has supported me in some form, one way or another, is also, uh, you know, part of this. Thank you. Following the interview with Arjun Chandra, I found myself creatively thinking about potential real-world human needs that I could identify and potentially address with AI and technologies designed explicitly to close the gaps between us. I hope Arjun's intentions can inspire other developers and stakeholders in the field to reflect more explicitly about how we can, in his words, sculpt more socially responsible roles for AI and develop technologies deeply aligned with human-centered and democratic prosperous visions for the future. Thank you for listening to the Chameleons podcast. 
This is your host, Imak Samrana.